Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Lushan Aklog. He's the chairman and CEO of PavMed. P-A-V-M-E-D, PavMed Incorporated. Lishan's a heart surgeon and a medical device entrepreneur who fled political violence in Ethiopia as a young teenager. Currently lives in New York. He serves as the chairman and CEO of PavMed, uh, listed on NASDAQ. The symbol is P-A-V-M. And we're going to talk about his work and about PavMed itself. So Lishan, thank you for coming. Hi, Richard. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, what led you to be in medicine and to be a medical entrepreneur? Maybe I'll take that in two parts. So the first half of my professional life was, in fact, in medicine. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a combination of a variety of things. My father was a very um, a pioneering physician in Ethiopia, which is where, I, as you mentioned, where I was uh, born. Uh, I was the first cardiologist there. So there was always some assumption when I grew up that I would, uh, would end up in medicine. I sort of balked at, at one point and thought I'd be a physicist and work in accelerator labs and so forth, which is why I did part of that in my early in my earlier youth. But um, I eventually saw the light and saw the opportunity to to both uh, you know, be in a position to help people and have an impact on people's lives, but also to do so on a foundation of, of science and technology, which was always um, yeah of great interest to me. So what made you transition from being a uh, medical doctor to actually an entrepreneur in medicine? Sure. So the, the word transition is right. It wasn't planned. It wasn't kind of a spontaneous event. You know, when I finished my residency training, so heart surgery requires a long training. I spent 10 years in training before I actually got my first job. And throughout my uh, career as a heart surgeon, and going all the way back to my residency years, uh, I was very active and very interested 
and, and technology. Um, I think part of it was my physics background. Part of it is that cardiac surgery is a, is a very technology focused specialty. And so I was quite active on medical device innovation. I was quite active with the larger and smaller uh, innovative companies, you know, served as an advisor and was always like looking for uh, opportunities to improve what we do. And, and that really is, is at the forefront is just, uh, just a general kind of thirst for innovation, thirst for questioning how things are done. Why do we do it this way? And are there ways to do it better? And over time, I started developing some of my own ideas and some of my own insights as to you know, ways to do things better. Some of that was you know, a little bit of a um, wandering in the desert, so to speak, for, for a few years without a lot of experience or knowledge or training on how to, on how to pursue technological innovation. But I did you know, have some interest in an area that I developed some clinical interest in, which was in uh, an area called pulmonary embolism, which are blood clots to the lungs. And I'd, I'd worked on the surgical procedures for that. I'd published some papers on it. I'd gone and traveled and lectured about it and across the country and across the world and came up with some ideas on how to do that procedure better, how to do it without requiring open heart surgery. And that, that, led, to, that led to our first innovation where me and one of my partners and a longtime colleague of ours from the medical device industry joined forces about 12 years ago and started to develop that technology. And that was kind of the beginning of the, uh, of the transition. Was this under the umbrella of PavMed or was it outside of it? So it was prior to PavMed. So prior to PavMed, we kind of look at PavMed as the second chapter. The first chapter started in 2007 when we joined forces and created an entity called Pavilion. And under Pavilion, we began the process of using a, a business model that our colleague Mike Lennon had developed in his prior experiences in the industry focused on being really capital efficient and, and speed to market. We started developing some technologies that resulted in four companies that were spun out of Pavilion, um, three of them with commercial products, uh, all of them VC-backed. Uh, one of them, we sold a company called Vortex Medical, which was the company that commercialized this product, AngioVac, that, was, that I had developed to treat uh, pulmonary embolism. Uh, we sold that to Android Dynamics in 2012, and it was really at that point where the transition was complete because after we sold Vortex, it became pretty clear at that point that doing this and doing heart surgery at the same time, which is what we had done for about five years, was not tenable, and we really, I really found a lot of satisfaction in the medical device innovation side of things and decided at that point to hang up my scalpel and uh, start doing this full time. And then PadMed arose within about a year and a half after that, where I moved back to New York. I'd been living in Arizona at the time and, you know, figuratively started kind of wandering Wall Street and trying to figure out what this second chapter would look like and how we would how we would capitalize it. That culminated in the founding of PavMed in 2014 with a twist on what we had done previously. Well, I just said we built on what we had done previously, but with some new features where we decided instead of doing single product companies, we would do one vehicle that was intended to be long-term, not built to to sell, so to speak. And that we would um, you know, we would we would take this vehicle, put our own innovations in it, but very importantly, develop it and build it in such a way that it was a streamlined vehicle for us to access technologies from academic medical centers and other physician entrepreneurs and clinical clinician innovators who we had access to, we had it within our network. And then the other aspect of it, so, so the decision to be multi-product from the beginning and to not be sort of specialized in orthopedics or cardiology or, or one of those disease or 
organ focused uh, areas. Uh, and we also did one other thing, which is which is a bit unusual for an early stage company is we decided based on our experience with the, on the using VC funding that we would be best suited to going to the public markets at a much earlier stage than it would be typical. So we started laying the groundwork for that as soon as we founded the company and went public on NASDAQ in a small IPO just under two years later. All right. So what's the current focus of PadMed? When, uh, are you licensing the existing technology or are you innovating your own and then bringing it to market? It's a combination. So we have technologies. I'll give you a couple of examples, but uh, we have a portfolio of about seven or eight products, three of which are uh, commercialized. And those are a mix of products that are, are our own innovations, but we've also so entered into, uh, to date, four uh, engagements where three of them were license agreements. One was an uh, outright acquisition. And so it's, it's a combination a combination of, um, of internal innovations as well as uh, external licensing or acquisition. So what are some of the most interesting or fruitful uh, technologies that PadMed's working on right now? Yeah, so I think our most prominent technology is being commercialized by a subsidiary we created in 2018. And this technology is focused on the millions of people, patients with chronic heartburn, also known as gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD, who are at risk, although most don't know it, of developing a highly lethal form of esophageal cancer. And so this technology we licensed from Case Western Reserve combines two very innovative tools, uh, one of which is a molecular diagnostic test, a molecular genetic test that can assess DNA for changes called methylation and determine whether someone has is along the spectrum from precancer to cancer so that you can pick it up at, at an early stage at the precancer stage and intervene before it develops into cancer. So that's called ESOGARD. ESOCheck is a is a complementary product which is a non-invasive uh, tool that allows the physician or nurse to collect cells from the esophagus as an alternative to an endoscopy. You may know an endoscopy, you have to go to a medical center. It takes, you have to take the time off work. Usually the, someone has to also take the time off work to take you home. It requires an intravenous anesthesia and it's, you know, it's somewhat more invasive and inconvenient. They, this tool that they developed, which we're now commercializing, is, uh, can be done in an office in less than five minutes. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It's basically a balloon on a catheter that can be swallowed in an office setting. And in less than five minutes, uh, you can sample cells in the region that can be affected and send those cells for the test to determine whether uh, the patient has these precancerous conditions that that can be picked up, monitored, and treated before they develop into cancer. So that's the, that's kind of one one area. I'll pause there. I'm happy to go on to to some others. What do you find in common with these uh, these innovations or these ways of doing things better? Is it that you're taking procedures that re- would require hospitalization and allowing them in clinic, or are there other uh, commonalities? Yeah, I would say generally, if you look at uh, medical technology innovation in general, and that's 
true for our products as well, is that there are a couple of common categories. So one is you're making things less invasive, right? So it's less trauma to the patient. That may be just the actual procedure itself, or it may be that you can actually move the the procedure to a less, to a, a lower venue. So from an operating room, let's say to a procedure room, to an office and so forth. So these products, Isogard and Isocheck are perfect examples of that, where we have an alternative to more invasive, more cumbersome, more costly endoscopy uh, that's now less invasive. One of our other products is in the carpal tunnel space. We have a product called Carpex, uh, which also is focused on being less invasive, less invasive procedure for carpal tunnel syndrome, which allows uh, patients to recover more quickly. There are other scenarios which are more kind of economically focused, that there's less, uh, less cost, more cost effective, more, you know, improved sort of logistics of healthcare we have a product um, called Nextflow, which is a new cutting-edge in, um, intravenous catheter for um, inter- intravenous infusion catheter, which basically allows us to eliminate the need for electronic infusion pumps, which are very messy, very expensive, subject to all sorts of hardware and software problems. And we've we've come up with a technology that can eliminate those, or at least for most patients or for most infusions. So you, it's usually a combination: less invasive, but more cost-effective, improved logistics, improved patient experience, improved clinician and nursing experience. So is there a needed pipeline? Is there just a ton of innovation coming out of the universities, but you know, no funding and no pipeline to commercialize things? Like, Where do you find these technologies <laughs> to start? Right. So as, yeah, like, as you said, sort of, no, initially we started with our own clinical experience and developed sort of um, a methodology for identifying unmet clinical needs and trying to come up with with improvements that cross-pollinate at times across specialties. But to the in terms of uh, technologies that we identify, you you kind of hit the, hit the nail on the head. There are a lot of technologies that are that are trapped, frankly, particularly in academic medical centers, but also in small startup companies by physicians and physician entrepreneurs. And these technologies, you know, the the, the academic medical centers do a great job of Many do, at least, of bringing technologies and getting their physicians to think out of the box and come up with innovative solutions to unmet clinical needs. And they can get them to a certain point, but then get, get making that leap towards a commercial path is always difficult. And so we've um, come up with, you know, streamlined, improved, better engaged, better aligned ways to, to interf- interact with the academic centers to do so, and of course, to provide the capital and the resources to develop them. And that's also true on the on the physician entrepreneur side. The last, the acquisition we did recently, we acquired a company called Oncodisc and, and acquired it into a digital health company that we just created called Veris Health. And that company was founded by some very savvy physician entrepreneurs who'd had a previous success and, and sold it to a technology to a larger strategic previously. But they found you know, our model attractive in that we have this value creation engine with all these resources already ready to go, quite a broad ecosystem of people we work with, and, and access to capital. So uh, when it came to those uh, physician entrepreneurs who founded this company, it was a very attractive model for them to partner with us and, and proceed with the acquisition and work with us to advance those products further. Well, can we get into a little bit of details of some of the products, the ESO Guard and the, the two ESO products? What are they looking for? that would tell someone that uh, right. you know, their GERD is going to turn into esophageal cancer. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Right. So what we know is we know that if you have GERD, chronic heartburn, and you've had it for years or, or have very severe symptoms of it, that it's what, what we know is that it's not a benign, entirely benign condition, that there are a subset of patients, millions, who have certain risk factors 
that make it li- make it more likely for them to have these complications of GERD where the, the stomach fluid, the acid and bile that are finding their way into the esophagus and causing the symptoms of GERD are also causing changes to the cells lining the esophagus that can, that can lead to a precancer condition called Barrett's esophagus. It can proceed to a condition called dysplastic Barrett's esophagus, which is a truly pre-malignant condition, and then ultimately to esophageal cancer. So these tests are seeking to identify these, these patients. The risk factors are pretty straightforward. If you're over 50, you're white, male, obese, smoker, or have a family history. If you have three of those six risk factors and, and have a longstanding history of GERD, the recommendation is that you should be screened so that the precancer Barrett's can be identified well before it progresses to cancer and, it, and monitored until it reaches the, that dysplasia stage, which is more of a late precancer. And, and the reason it's important to screen and identify and monitor those patients is that that late precancer can be treated uh, before progression. So it can be treated with a procedure called um, endoscopic esophageal ablation, where the abnormal cells are, are treated with radiofrequency energy and, and destroyed and replaced with normal cells, which reliably halts the progression to cancer. Uh, so that's the opportunity here is to save lives through early detection of esophageal precancer in a well-defined group of patients with GERD who are at risk for developing that. Uh, and there are millions of them. There are over 10 million men alone who are the highest risk group who fall into that category of, um, of benefiting from screening. Are you able to say what the biomarker indicates specifically? And what is there any um, information on the transition itself, what causes it or what's involved? Yeah, there's some understanding. I'll, I'll answer the latter question first. There is some understanding as to the biologic changes, you know, the cells of the esophagus have a particular feature to them. They're called squamous cells. And gradually with exposure to this fluid, they start looking more like cells in the stomach and then ultimately the intestine. And that's that. The, it's, it's almost as if, I mean, it's as if it's uh, adapting to the exposure to acid and stomach contents to try to uh, protect itself, right? But that transformation, initially benign, can, as many situations you know, across the body, can can go awry and and develop into these dysplastic changes, which can which can develop uh, which can develop into cancer. The test will identify all of the conditions from the early precancer, non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus, through dysplastic Barrett's esophagus, and ultimately cancer. So the test is uh, to identify those patients who are along the spectrum and to rule out those who are not. Once you have a positive test, then that patient does need to get an endoscopy to determine which of the conditions along the spectrum the patient has and what the appropriate, fo- so that the appropriate follow-up or treatment could be made. So if it's non-dysplastic, if it's the earliest stage, that patient can be monitored with an endoscopy every three years. If it's dysplastic, they can be ablated and prevent progression from cancer. If it turns out to be an early cancer, then they'll need then they'll need more aggressive ther- therapy for that. But that's usually usually we're picking it up at the precancer stage. What's involved in a carpal tunnel surgery to relieve it, and then what's different about uh, your methodology than what's current? Yeah. Great question. So, so carpal tunnel is one of the most common, uh, it's a very common condition. It's the most common cause of workman's comp. And it occurs with people who have repetitive motion uh, in their work or in their activity. So typical example would be someone who does secretarial work or data entry or, you know, laboratory technicians or faculty, factory workers who are doing the same motion with their hand at the wrist level uh, repeatedly, you know, for hours on end, days and, and years. And what that leads to is that 
uh, a ligament across the base of the uh, wrist, kind of right where the wrist meets the forearm, starts to get scarred. It's called the, the transverse carpal ligament. And underneath that ligament is a major nerve that goes to the hand called the median nerve. So as the as you have this repetitive motion and the scarring, the nerve gets trapped and can cause really ultimately fairly incapacitating neurologic symptoms in the hand, numbness, pain, tingling, et cetera. Uh, typically will happen on both hands. And so the standard procedure is an open surgical approach where an incision is made at the base of the hand and that ligament is cut. It's cut, uh, which relieves the pressure on the nerve, can reliably resolve the symptoms. The problem is that making an incision at that location is quite invasive. It may not seem like a big incision or otherwise, you know, a, a very intense surgical trauma, but it's in a very awkward area. And so it's a place that's difficult to heal. The official recovery times are are quoted as a couple of months, two to three months, but I've known people, in fact, surgeons who've had to stop working for a year or more because it's just a very hard, difficult area to heal. It's an area where there's a lot of motion. There are chronic pain syndromes that arise from people just having poor healing there. So what our technology does is to try to leverage some of the advances that have occurred in other areas of medicine, such as in cardiology and other areas where we use balloons and catheters and an area that had not really touched on tools that had not really touched on this area. And so what Carpex does is a device is inserted through a very small incision a bit further upstream up the arm and inserted, a catheter device is inserted under the ligament and attached to that device is a balloon. And a balloon basically inflates within the tunnel, separates the nerve away from the ligament. And on the balloon are these two radiofrequency electrodes, which can cut the ligament using RF energy from the inside out. So it accomplishes the same result as a surgical procedure and that the, the ligament is being cut, but it does so without making an incision directly over it and by, by slipping a device under the ligament and doing so in a safe way where the, where the nerve is protected and otherwise. So because it's less traumatic, you know, we're just getting early experience in the, in the commercial realm. You know, we have a uh, reason to believe that people's recovery times will be dramatically less. So not on the order of months, but on the order of days to weeks before they can get back to full life. What if you were able to uh, use the exact same type of therapy using the balloon to separate tissue out, but you went in there without a surgery to cut nerves, you just went in there to inflate and move and maybe even hold for a period of, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, uh, some of these materials away from each other so that they can change function and flow and things could be kind of relieved. That's a great thought. So first of all, you want to make sure you're not cutting the nerve, you're cutting the ligament, you're, you're assiduously making sure that you don't cut the nerve. I'm sorry, I meant the opposite. No, no, I know that. I just wanted to point that out just in case people got confused with that. So what you're referring to is something called tunneloplasty. People have tried that before where you just inflate a balloon in this tunnel and it doesn't work because the tunnel, because the scarring process is very aggressive, uh, very tight. The ligament is kind of very thick and, and scarred. And so your ability to kind of stretch that and create enough space and relieve the pressure on the nerve is, is just not sufficient with, uh, with stretching it alone. So we stretch it, but we stretch it and cut it just like has been done with traditional surgery. Cutting the ligament actually is fine. The, the, the transverse carpal tunnel the transverse carpal ligament doesn't have any sort of mechanical functional effect. So it doesn't affect how people's, you know, how they're, the function of the hand or the wrist. And so there's really no issue with cutting it. And that gives you really nice, complete relief of the pressure on the nerve. Yeah, I know. I'm just, you know, thinking about things on the fly, but um, yeah, have you ever looked at, 
Yeah. Have, have you ever looked at uh, any alternative therapies like acupuncture? Because I, you know, I've, I'm just again, I'm just throwing this out there, but acupuncture, yeah. from what I understand, the needles will go into tissue and kind of open it up in a, you know, just tiny little bits and uh, cause change and possibly healing to the area. So I wonder if um, right. if any of your technologies would ever incorporate stuff like that and kind of marry the two together to help therapies. Right. So we, I, we don't have any experience with acupuncture. I mean, although there is good data that in very in certain um, in certain conditions that it works and it works um, with uh, as you said by just slight disruptions leading to certain you know physiologic changes neurologic ne- you know neural transmission changes and so forth and for things like pain and other things that can be effective I, I don't know of any examples where acupuncture works where there's a very sort of clear and severe anatomic problem you know where there's there's a scarred ligament that's causing you know serious pressure on a pretty big size nerve. And I don't really, I, I don't, you know, could it be complementary in some sense, perhaps, but the, 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 the anatomic uh, abnormality is so significant and the, and, and very focal in this case that in these cases that the only thing that I, that I know to be effective is to actually intervene, but, you know, try to do so less invasively as we are. Yeah. The reason I ask is like, you're, I can hear that your mind is open to, you know, let's, let's do what actually works best. Absolutely. And I wonder if anyone has taken, you know, kind of standard of care, traditional modalities and integrated them with things like that, you know, yeah. and then use them in clinic. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think, I think, you know, it comes down to, to sort of proving and develop, you know, developing the, you know, the, the underlying science behind it and making and determining that, that it actually works. And so, as I said, acupuncture has been shown to work in, 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 a, in a variety of, in a variety of settings, um, you know, particularly as it relates to neurogenic pain syndromes and things like that. So yeah, I think, I think you got the right sense that we're all, we're open-minded to, to, um, and not terribly dogmatic. In fact, that's, in, that's in fact, what's driven me to be where I am is to, is to kind of reject dogma and to think about, you know, alternative ways to do things. Yeah. Excellent. Any, um, you know, we're close to wrapping up any projects that are on the horizon that you can talk about that you're excited that are maybe in earlier stages. Sure. Yeah. Let's, um, yeah, maybe I can talk a little bit about, we have this project, been working on for a few years that uh, for pediatric ear tubes. So as most folks who are parents know, you know, p- uh, pediatric ear infections are quite common. Many of them are, many kids have recurrent ear infections and they end up requiring drainage of the ear to prevent uh, more serious infections uh, with tubes, little, little tiny microscopic plastic tubes. And uh, there are about a million of those placed a year. The problem with, there's lots of problems with those tubes, however, because they're plastic, they tend to fall out, they tend to require eardrop, antibiotic eardrops at the time of insertion and a variety of things. So we've licensed technology from Massachusetts Eye Eye and Ear Institute, a Harvard teaching hospital, and Tufts University to create tubes made out of this, out of silk material. Uh, There's a lot of real interest in silk right now. You can process silk in various ways to create things that that look and feel like plastic. And and you can, you know, you can mold and shape, shape them accordingly. And the beauty of silk in the body is that it gets resorbed, but over a very long period of time. So we're developing these ear tubes. We've partnered with Canon, uh, who's got an interest in this, uh, the Canon USA group down in Virginia. And we're developing tubes that are made out of the silk material that will, one, not that will have antibiotics coating on coated on them and won't require the eardrops. And then also over time, they can resorb 
and go away over a period of a couple of years when the kids will grow out of it, at which point they won't need to have a second general anesthesia to have it. So it's a little bit away, but we think sometime next next year we'll have an opportunity to bring that technology to market. Okay. Well, very good. Well, LaShawn, what's the best way for people to find out more about PadMed and, uh, you know, what's the website and how can they look it up? Sure. The website's um, www.pavmed.com. If they're specifically focused on Lucid, that's P-A-V-M-E-D.com. On Lucid, it's Lucid and the and the esophageal products. It's Lucid DX, L-U-C-I-D-D-X.com. And they can also just email us at info at pavmed.com and we'll be happy to, to direct them to any other sources of information. Very good. Okay. Well, LeSean, thank you for coming. And uh, it sounds like the innovations you're working on are going to be super helpful to people you know, reduce the amount of uh, time and energy and, and, you know, going to the hospital instead of doing stuff in clinic and leaving. So, uh, you know, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.